And we're live. Thank you guys for coming back once again. I believe this is part 16 of Extremist Literature, uh, where we're covering the Pure Worship of Jehovah book by Jehovah's Witnesses. So last time we left off on page 94. Uh, we are on page 95 now, uh, chapter 9, officially, so we've gotten nine chapters into this book at this point. That's actually pretty impressive, I think. I think we're around halfway done, um, give or take. Chapter 9 starts out with the opening. It's, it's entitled, I Will Give Them a Unified Heart. Uh, here's the focus of it. The theme of restoration and how it is developed in Ezekiel's prophecies. Right off the bat, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that I will give them a unified heart is kind of code for uh, I want all of these people to think the exact same way. And that, of course, is a sign of a cult, having a unified thinking like that, uh, not being allowed to break out of this mentality and, and have independent thinking. Using thought-stopping techniques to keep, to, to keep them on track, to keep them thinking the way they want them to. You know, that's cult mentality. That's extremism. So, right off the bat, I think this chapter is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to go down that road. We shall see. So, here's paragraph one. Imagine that you're a faithful Jew living in the city of Babylon. Your people have been in exile for half a century or so. As is your custom on the Sabbath day, you're going to meet with fellow believers to worship Jehovah. Making your way through the bustling streets, you pass imposing temples as well as shrines beyond counting. The people throng to see those places, making offerings and singing hymns to such deities as Marduk. So the picture they're drawing here is obviously one of false worship. You know, any Jehovah's Witness or ex-Jehovah's Witness can see that. In fact, most people can probably see what they're doing here. They're trying to inspire this, this image of false worship. You know, it, it, the place is full of false worshipers. Let's continue on and see what they have to say. So this is paragraph two. Away from the crowds, you meet your little group of fellow worshipers. You find a quiet spot, perhaps one by the city's canals, to pray, sing psalms, and reflect on God's word together. And by the way, psalms, they say to sing psalms. Psalms are songs. In fact, the book of Psalms was the Jewish hymnals, if you guys didn't know that. It's an interesting little piece of information. So it says, To pray, sing psalms, and reflect on God's word together. As you join in prayer, you can hear the gentle I'm sorry, you can hear the gentle creaking of the wooden barges moored along the canal's edge. You're relieved that there is a measure of peace here. You hope that one, I'm sorry, you hope that none of the local people find you and disrupt the meeting as they often do. Why would they do that? And here comes the persecution complex. Are we ready for this? So there is a difference between persecution, like genuine, genuine persecution and a persecution complex. So there were some people who were attacked and killed, some Jehovah's Witnesses who were attacked and killed in World War II. Um, that's legitimate. That's true. But, uh, that you know, genuine persecution. But Jehovah's Witnesses, th this persecution complex comes in when they're convinced that as a result of that, or because that happened, they use that one event 
to say it's going to happen like every five seconds. Uh, yes, they are persecuted sometimes. They're made fun of. They're, you know, they're attacked to have dogs released on them. That happened to me. I've told that story many times. Um, they were killed in World War II. More than one. I think it was like 1,200 of them or something died in custody in World War II. They were persecuted. But, but using those events as reason to believe that persecution is around every corner and literally everybody hates you and making up reasons for why they hate you saying that it's because you're you love jehovah or some nonsense that's a persecution complex and that is another sign of a cult something i noticed though is the fact that the whole persecution complex thing that's not actually on the bite model that's just that's kind of something that i added to it uh but anyway so that was paragraph two. It ended with, you hope none of the local people find you and disrupt the meeting as they often do. Why do they do that? So here's paragraph three. Babylon has, lo- I'm sorry, Babylon has a long record of winning wars and the people attribute the city's strengths to their false gods. To the Babylonians, the utter destruction of Jerusalem proves that their god Marduk is stronger than Jehovah. Hence, They ridicule your God and his people. Sometimes they mockingly demand, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. Many psalms, remember psalms are actually just songs, they're hymnals basically. Many psalms celebrate Zion's triumphs over Jehovah's enemies. Perhaps the Babylonians love to mock those psalms in particular. Other psalms, though, speak about the Babylonians themselves. One, for example, says, they have turned Jerusalem into a heap of ruins. Those around us ridicule and jeer us. That's apparently quoted from Psalm 79, 1, 3, and 4. Interesting. Okay, so Jehovah's Witnesses here are trying to establish that, you know, their people, quote-unquote, the good guys, you know, they're illustrating this us-versus-them mentality. Um, So the good guys in their eyes, the in-group, is being relentlessly and shamelessly attacked. Uh, they're surrounded by the outgroup, and they're being attacked and mocked and persecuted by the outgroup for their beliefs. That's the picture Jehovah's Witnesses are drawing here. So uh, let's continue on, see what else they have to say. So here's paragraph four. There are also apostate Jews who are quick to ridicule your faith in Jehovah and in his prophets. Regardless of such mockery, pure worship brings comfort to you and your family. It feels good to pray and to sing together. Reading God's word is soothing. Imagine that on this day, one of your fellow worshipers has brought something special to the gathering, a scroll containing Ezekiel's prophecy. You love to hear Jehovah's promise that he will restore his people to their homeland. Your heart soars as such a prophecy is read aloud, and you contemplate the hope that you and your family may someday return and help the, and help in that thrilling time of restoration. Something else I noticed is that they're obviously trying to put their members in the shoes of the you know these people. They're trying to get you to empathize with the plight of these people in this town. They're not just drawing this image for you. They want you to envision it, um, enact it, become a part of it. Uh, 
so that's that that's actually kind of interesting the way they're doing that i imagine that's gonna that's gonna have another part to play as we go on so that was paragraph four let's take a quick look at uh, paragraph five Ezekiel's prophecy rings again and again with promises of restoration. Let us examine that hopeful time. I'm sorry, let us examine that hopeful theme. How were those promises fulfilled for the exiles? What meaning do such prophecies have in modern times? In some cases, we will also consider a final fulfillment in the future. Interesting. So, Ezekiel's prophecy rings again and again with promises of restoration. Let us examine that hopeful theme. How were these promises fulfilled for the exiles? So it sounds to me like they're they're going back to that type anti-type thing that they talked about in the very very beginning where something that happened in the past or from the book of Ezekiel is a reflection of what's going to happen today. Uh, so we'll see what they have to say about that. So that was the end of that subheading. The next subheading is called they will go into exile, into captivity. Okay, let's take a look at uh, paragraph 6. Through Ezekiel, Jehovah communicated clearly to his people how he would punish them for their rebellious course. They will go into exile, into captivity, Jehovah said. As we saw in chapter 6 of this publication, Ezekiel even acted out that sentence. But this was not the first such warning. Since the days of Moses, nearly a millennium earlier, Jehovah had warned his people that if they persisted in a rebellious course, they would suffer exile. Such prophets as Isaiah and Jeremiah had given similar warnings. So, a second ago they said, as we saw in chapter 6 of this publication, Ezekiel even acted out that sentence. There was a whole piece in this book, Pure Worship of Jehovah, about how Ezekiel acted out these weird prophecies like putting a brick on the ground and then hitting the brick with a whip or something i don't even remember what it is now but it was some really weird bizarre thing um and he did a bunch of stuff like that it wasn't just one thing of him abusing a brick it was like he built up this stuff around the brick to represent a siege and thing it was like really bizarre and that's what they're talking about here. As we saw in chapter 6 of this publication, Ezekiel even acted out that sentence. He acted out that sentence, too, in the book. Uh, it, it was just really weird. So, anyway. Okay, so that was chapter 6. Here's 7. Sadly, though, those warnings largely fell on deaf ears. In time, Jehovah came to feel brokenhearted over his people's rebellion, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness, and their corruption under the influence of bad shepherds. He thus allowed them to suffer famine, which was a disaster and a disgrace, considering that their land had been one flowing with milk and honey. Then, as he had long foretold, Jehovah allowed his wayward people to be punished with exile. In 607 BCE, which, you know, I say this every time, I just want to say it again, 607 is not the right date, they got it wrong, it's 30 years later, or 20 years later. In 607 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon struck the final blow, destroying Jerusalem and her temple. Many thousands of the surviving Jews were carried off into exile in Babylon. There, they suffered the mockery and opposition described at the outset of this chapter. So they're just kind of going through the prophecies and talking about all this stuff again. Uh, nothing we haven't really heard up to this point. Uh, We'll see where they go with it. So here's, chapter, um, here's paragraph 8. Oh my god, I'm still doing it. Still mixing up chapters and paragraphs. Okay, here's paragraph 8. 
Did something similar to the Babylonian exile befall the Christian congregation? It did indeed. Like the Jews of ancient times, Christ's followers were warned ahead of time. Early in his ministry, Jesus said, Be on the watch for the false prophets who come to you in sheep's covering, but inside they are ravenous wolves. Years later, the Apostle Paul was inspired to issue a similar warning. I know that after my going away, oppressive wolves will enter in among you and will not treat the flock with tenderness. And from among you yourselves, men will rise and speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. You know what I find fascinating? In the last paragraph, they said, um, this is in the beginning of paragraph seven. Sadly, though, those warnings were uh, largely fell on deaf ears. In time, Jehovah came to feel brokenhearted over his people's rebellion, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness, and their corruption under the influence of bad shepherds. Under the influence of bad shepherds. Notice that line there. And then in the one we just read, paragraph 8, they said, right at the end, the Apostle Paul was inspired to issue a similar warning. I know that after my going away, oppressive wolves will enter in among you and will not treat the flock with tenderness. And from among you yourselves, men will rise and speak twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. You know, I wonder if Jeho- I wonder how the governing body would rate themselves. Do you think that they'd rate themselves as good shepherds or bad shepherds? Do you think they're following the rules of the Bible as they were intended to be followed? Um, I definitely do not. They make a lot of logical leaps, a lot. And they claim, here's the real issue with it, they claim to have divine authority. They claim that they have God's um they have God's ear, or God has their ear. He's talking to them, he's telling them what to say, and they just pull things out of thin air, pretty commonly, and say that it was divine revelation for all intents and purposes. So, they can't really say that their rules are based on the Bible, because they're not entirely. A lot of the stuff that they come up with is based on the fact that God gave it to them, pretty much, is what they're saying. It's not Bible-based. But I do find it fascinating that they're talking about bad shepherds, uh, you know, religion going corrupt because of it, and things like that. There's, like, no self-awareness here. I don't think they even realize what's going on. I don't think they realize just how corrupt and disgusting their own organization is. There's zero self-awareness. Okay, so that was paragraph 8. Here's paragraph 9. Christians were taught how to identify and avoid such dangerous men. Christian elders were instructed to remove apostates from the congregation. Nonetheless, as was the case with Israel and Judah of old, many, many Christians gradually turned a deaf ear to loving warnings. By the end of the first century, apostasy had taken root in the congregation. John, the last of the apostles still living at the close of the first century CE, observed that the congregation was suffering such corruption and widespread rebellion. He was the only remaining, res- uh, he was the only remaining restraint against that wicked trend. What happened after John died? So I notice, like in this paragraph, they mention that the early Christian congregation removed apostates from the congregation, right? And they're giving some quotes here from like Second Peter and 
Second John, um, Second Timothy, lots of seconds in here. Anyway, I notice they're, they're taking a lot of quotes out of here. There are a couple of spots that Jehovah's Witnesses specifically use to support their shunning policy. And it's fascinating that they use those things to, or these, these verses to which I'm referring to support their shunning policy, because the Bible actually does ostensibly support shunning for a minute. Uh, a letter that was written to Corinthians, I feel like, one of the Corinthians, he told them to remove the evildoer from their midst, basically. They did that. The congregation did that. They removed him completely. They started shunning him and everything. And then he wrote a follow-up letter to them saying, let's not cause undue sadness. What's done is done. Let's bring him back in, basically. We want to fix this. We don't want to cause him to just be completely grief-stricken. So he wrote something to this congregation, you know, trying to get them to follow some certain guidelines. You know, this guy ostensibly being the leader of the church, and they went overboard by shunning, and he set them straight. So Jehovah's Witnesses cut out that part about him setting them straight, and they just bring in that piece about shunning, about how they shunned the congregation, or I'm sorry, about how they shunned, the congregation shunned the guy, and, and throw everything else out. So it's a very picky and choosy kind of thing. They pick and choose what they want to read and what it means to them. And anything else they just throw out. And they feel okay doing that because, you know, God's speaking to them directly. Uh, he would tell the, the governing body members directly if he didn't want them to force everybody to shun their family members and their friends from childhood. So that was paragraph 9. Let's take a look at uh, paragraph 10 says, after John's death, Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds began to see fulfillment. It says, read Matthew 13, 24 to 30. So let's take a quick look at it. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. It says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Okay, uh... It feels to me like Jehovah's Witnesses are kind of making this out to be like a super wise King Solomon-esque decision. No, that's stupid. Why would they do that? The weeds are stealing nutrients that the food needs to survive. Uh, why, would, why would anybody do that? That's ridiculous. Do not let the weeds grow. You pull them up for that reason. Your food is going to be worth less if you leave the weeds in. Okay, so here's paragraph 10 in the, uh, in the book again. After John's death, from the very beginning. After John's death, Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds began to see fulfillment. Then it says, read Matthew 13, 24 to 30. As Jesus had foreseen, Satan oversowed the congregation with weeds, or imitation Christians, okay? Imitation Christians, is that like imitation crab meat, kind of? And the corruption of the congregation sped up. 
How heartbroken Jehovah must have been to see the congregation his son had founded become polluted with idolatry, pagan holidays and practices, and face I'm sorry, and false doctrines adopted from godless philosophers and satanic religions. What did Jehovah do? As he had done with unfaithful Israel, he let his people be taken into exile. From some time in the second century CE onward, the wheat-like ones were lost among the imitation Christians. Okay, so it says, just a quick aside here, it says, um, I was just looking for it. From some time in the second century CE onward, the wheat-like ones, so the good Christians, I guess, the wheat-like ones, were lost among the imitation Christians, or the weeds in their eyes. Uh, so that that's them kind of saying that... Uh, you know, pagan practices and Satanism have all kind of worked their way into true religion. Okay. The true Christian congregation was, in effect, an exile in Babylon the Great, the world empire of false religion, whereas the imitation Christians were absorbed by that corrupt empire. As the imitation Christians flourished, Christendom came into being. So a lot of you guys probably know in the Bible, it talks about how Israel was given into exile or whatever. I don't even know. For the bad things they did. Unfaithful Israel. And that was a kind of a foreshadow of what was to come with true religion from the beginning. God let true religion... He gave true religion over to false religion, apparently. And let the lines get blurred between true and false religion. Um, let the wheat-like ones get lost among the imitation Christians. I don't understand. Like, it, it, doesn't God want everybody to get into, like, heaven or paradise or whatever it is you believe or don't believe? Isn't that, like, the goal? Isn't that what God wanted? Why is he allowing this weird, convoluted set of events to take place where good people are deceived and then brought back and just doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. Like, it's just bizarre. Where are they getting all of this? Okay, so that was paragraph 10. Here's paragraph uh, 11, or paragraph 11 is next. I'm just taking a quick glance at some of the pictures. Really interesting pictures that they're showing in this book. Um, if you guys are watching the podcast, or if you're listening to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or something, FYI, you can uh, you can go to YouTube and, and physically watch it. Um, I go through this book with it pulled up on the screen. So if you want to see the pictures to which I'm referring, you can actually go to YouTube and, lo- and watch it from there. Um, but uh, let me just describe like what, what kinds of pictures we're dealing with here. So on page 98, it looks like, uh, right below paragraph 11, which is our next paragraph. There's a picture of what appears to be a stereotypical friar. Uh, When I see this guy, I'm thinking Friar Tuck from Robin Hood. Um, I think that was his name, right? Friar Tuck? Well, anyway, he's got like a bald head, except for just like a line of hair all the way around, like a bowl cut, except shaved on the top. You know, you know the one I'm talking about. And he's got like some weird monk robes and they're holding a cross. And of course, cross with Jehovah's Witnesses is just evil. It's, it's idolatry to the core. 
and they're holding a guy who appears to be have his hands bound, is what it looks like. He's got his hands bound, and the friar is talking to him and scolding him, or, or what it looks like is scolding him. Uh, so, I don't know. It, it's basically depicting false religion capturing this true Christian and persecuting him. That's what this picture depicts. Okay, so here's paragraph 11. Throughout the dark centuries of Christendom's dominance, there were some genuine Christians, the wheat of Jesus' parable. You know, I guess I don't really understand that parable. Like, seriously, that's a really bad idea. Leave the weeds in? Why would you do that? That's choking out the rest of the good food. Seriously. Okay. It goes on to say, like the Jewish exiles described at Ezekiel 6-9, they remembered the true God. Some courageously opposed the false doctrines of Christendom. They faced mockery and persecution. Did Jehovah intend to forsake his people permanently in that realm of spiritual darkness? No. As was the case with Israel of old, Jehovah's anger was expressed to the proper degree and for the right amount of time. Oh, God. Furthermore, Jehovah did not leave his people without hope. Let us return to those Jewish exiles in ancient Babylon and see how Jehovah gave them hope for an end to their captivity. I love how they say, uh, let me find it, as was the case with Israel of old, Jehovah's anger was expressed to the proper degree and for the right amount of time. I find that really fascinating. We've seen lots of way worse things in today's world by Christian standards or by Jehovah's Witnesses standards at the very least. We've seen way worse things in today's modern world than happened in the ancient world with, uh, you know, the Jews and things like that, with Israel or whatever, according to the Bible. And Jehovah is not showing any kind of wrath or anger of any sort. He's not giving us any sign he even exists. So I find it fascinating that they're sitting here saying Jehovah's anger, um, as was the case with Israel of old, Jehovah's anger was expressed to the proper degree and for the right amount of time. It's just like that thing they say about how we may feel like Armageddon's taking a long time to happen, but Jehovah is always on time. He has a time schedule. We don't know it, but he has one. And he will be on time, no matter what. So when it happens, he will be on time. How do they know if he's going to be on time or not? They don't know the time schedule. It's just ridiculous. Okay. God, this is killing me. So that was the end of that subheading. The next one is entitled, My Anger Will Come to an End. This is paragraph 12. Let me just take a quick glance down here. Um, this chapter has 40 or 39 paragraphs in it. That's pretty long. And we're getting into some other sections here. So I figure we'll probably get to paragraph 19. That's what I'm shooting for. Uh, that is not the beginning of the next subheading. It's halfway through it. But uh, this one's broken up really strangely. So we'll see. Okay, here's number 12. Jehovah was forthright about his anger toward his people, but he also reassured them that his righteous indignation would not last forever. Note, for instance, these words. My anger will come to an end, and my wrath against them will subside, and I will be satisfied. And they will have to know that I, Jehovah, have spoken in my insistence on exclusive devotion when I have finished unleashing my wrath against them. Why would Jehovah's wrath eventually subside? Really fascinating. 
Okay. I love getting like Jehovah's Witnesses viewpoint on some of these verses. So, so interesting. All right, let's take a look at uh, number 13. Among the captives were faithful Jews who were taken into exile along with their unfaithful counterparts. In addition, through is I'm sorry, through Ezekiel, God foretold that some of his people would repent while in exile. Those remorseful Jews would recount the shameful things that they had done in rebellion against their God, and they would implore Jehovah for forgiveness and favor. Ezekiel was among the faithful ones, as were the prophet Daniel and his three companions. In fact, Daniel lived long enough to see both the beginning and the end of the exile. His heartfelt prayer of repentance over the sins of Israel is recorded in Daniel chapter 9. No doubt his sentiments represented the feelings of many thousands of exiles who longed for Jehovah's forgiveness and renewed blessings. How thrilling, then, were Ezekiel's inspired promises of releasing... I'm sorry. uh, How thrilling, then, were Ezekiel's inspired promises of release and restoration? Yeah, um, the book of Daniel is a really, really interesting one, too. So earlier I was talking about Ezekiel, how it has, like, a bunch of weird stuff in it about Ezekiel, like, laying a brick on the ground and abusing it and you know, building stuff up around it, some kind of a weird representation, which apparently Jehovah's Witnesses were mostly taking literally, but not always taking literally. I don't even know. Well, the book of Daniel also has a lot of really weird stuff like that. Uh, It's, you know, it talks about writing on the wall and people being put in ovens but surviving and just really, really bizarre things. And it talks about um, the king of the north and the king of the south and really strange prophecies. And Jehovah's Witnesses, when there are strange, obscure prophecies, quote-unquote prophecies, with quotes around it, uh, when there are things like that, they just run wild with it. They have all kinds of interesting ideas about what it means, and, you know, and they're so sure of it. They know that this is what it means. It's so fascinating to see their, the gears turning in their heads. But it's not really the people, you know, the like the regular members that are, are making these claims. It's the governing body members. So the religion is almost like a reflection of their personalities. Some of the things that they come out with, some of the claims they make, it's like a reflection of their own personalities. Okay, that was paragraph 13. So uh, between uh, the paragraph, there are some pictures. So it, it, the paragraph's broken up by some pictures. One of the pictures is captioned, it's, uh, it's got a, a guy standing there with a rod. It's kind of hard to tell what's happening. The caption says, For centuries, true Christians faced persecution at the hands of Babylon the Great. See paragraphs 10 and 11. Okay, I guess I'm assuming what's happening here is they are about to burn somebody at the stake. And because, you know, they're all kind of standing around a big piece of wood that has kindling around it. It's it's standing upright and it's got kindling all around it at its base. And there's a guy standing there with a torch. So I'm assuming that that's what's, you know, what they're depicting here. I seem to remember them doing that to witches, too, like Christians doing that to witches. Uh, But yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses, their religion wasn't responsible for that stuff. Their religion wasn't wasn't the one doing the bad stuff. It was this other religion, this false religion that was doing the bad stuff. Take the blame for all the bad and give it to somebody else. 
and keep the credit. That's how it works. So that's the picture on page 99. Um, there are two more pictures on page 100, right, right below that one in the PDF. The first picture is captioned as number one. Worship free from idolatry, is what it says. And I guess it's people all sitting around eating food together. It's like a family. It's like a mother and a father and a little boy and a little girl sitting around on the ground eating food together. Uh, And then there's a second picture, which is captioned, Return to a Fertile Homeland with a picture of bushes all around and two guys wearing weird little headband things and robes picking berries off of the bushes, ostensibly. And it says, Jehovah keeps his promises, ancient times. See paragraphs 15 to 19. Very fascinating. Okay, so let's take a look at number 14 now. You know what? Just to step back, let's read the last, like, sentence in 13 so we have a little more context when going into 14. No doubt his sentiments represented the feelings of many thousands of exiles who longed for Jehovah's forgiveness and renewed blessings. How thrilling, then, were Ezekiel's inspired promises of release and restoration. You remember we were talking about Daniel and uh, how apparently he lived through the restoration or something. Okay, here's 14. There was, however, a more important factor in the release and restoration of Jehovah's people. Their long exile would end, not because they deserved liberation, but because it was, again, Jehovah's time to sanctify his own name before all the nations. Those Babylonians would know once and for all that their, deme- I'm sorry, that their demonic gods, such as Marduk, were no match for the sovereign Lord Jehovah. Let us consider five promises that Jehovah inspired Ezekiel to share with his fellow exiles. First, let us discuss what each promise would have meant to those faithful ones. Then we will see how those promises saw a greater fulfillment. So the next few paragraphs are going through promises. Promise number one, number two, number three, four, and five. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty long. Uh, I would like to get through all five. It's a little bit it's a little bit of a read though, so we'll see. Uh, but yeah, the, so this paragraph number fourteen, the one we just read, it starts out saying their long exile would end not because they deserved liberation, but because it was again Jehovah's time to sanctify His own name before all the nations. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are really big on this whole, you know, we're undeserving of Jehovah's loving kindness kind of thing. You know, this whole anti-pride, like you can't have, you can't be proud of yourself for anything. You can't be proud of anything. There, I mean, pride is wrong in their eyes completely. Uh, they talked about it in one of their bunker videos, actually, which I covered on my channel recently, but you never deserve anything. It's all out of the goodness of Jehovah's heart. And of course, Jehovah is synonymous or used synonymously with the governing body or Jehovah's Witnesses. So anything that you get is out of the goodness of the governing body's hearts, really, is, is how it's portrayed here. I mean, th- th- that's what it comes down to. Okay, let's take a look at their promises here. Um, The first one is covered in paragraph 15. There are five promises, and it's paragraphs 15 through 19 are the five. So let's take a look at 15. Promise number one, no more idolatry or other disgusting practices associated with false religion. 
It says, read Ezekiel eleven eighteen 18, and 12, 24. Let's take a quick look here. Ezekiel eleven eighteen 18 says, they will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. And then 12, 24 says, for there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. And you know, that's, it's one more thing that kind of kills me is the fact that like Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that magic is a real thing. I'm sorry, I just cannot get on board with that. Seriously? You really think that magic is a real thing? Like, for realsies, not for playsies? Okay, so uh, it says, read Ezekiel 11.18 and 12.24. As discussed in chapter 5 of this publication, Jerusalem and her temple has been, or I'm sorry, had been polluted with false religious practices such as idolatry. The people were thus corrupt, alienated from Jehovah. Through Ezekiel, Jehovah foretold that the exiles could look forward to a time when they would once again take part in worship that was clean and undefiled. All other blessings of the restoration would depend on this primary matter, the restoration of God's arrangement for pure worship. Okay, so apparently that's promise number one, the restoration of God's arrangement for pure worship. Uh, No more idolatry or other disgusting practices associated with false religion. That's the first promise. That was paragraph 15. Let's take a look at promise number two, paragraph 16. A return to their homeland. Oh, bear in mind, they're talking about Israel in this bit here, I believe. Uh, But that's supposed to foreshadow future events. So they're kind of talking about what happens later by talking about what happened back then, um, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. A return to their homeland is promise number two. I will give you this land, I'm sorry, I will give you the land of Israel, Jehovah told the exiles. This was a remarkable promise for the Babylonians who taunted God's captive people, surely never gave them any hope of returning to their beloved homeland. Moreover, As long as the returnees remained faithful, the land would prove fertile and productive, supporting them and providing useful work. The disgrace and misery of famine would remain a thing of the past. Okay. It says, read Ezekiel 36.30, and that says, I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Okay, so here's paragraph uh, 17, promise number three. The resuming of gift offerings at Jehovah's altar. Oh, that's interesting. As noted in chapter 2 of this publication, under the law, sacrifices and offerings formed a vital part of pure worship. As long as the returning exiles remained obedient and spiritually clean, their offerings would be acceptable to Jehovah. The people could thus find atonement for their sins and remain close to their God. Jehovah promised, The whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. I will take pleasure in them there, and I will require your contributions and the first fruits of your offerings, all your holy things. Pure worship would truly be restored, bringing blessings to God's people. That was a little bit more wordy than I needed, but okay. So they're saying that the third promise is the resuming of gift offerings at Jehovah's altar, a.k.a. animal sacrifices. That was the third promise. So here's the fourth promise. Chapter 18. God, I'm still doing it. I swear I will get this. Before the end of this book, we're 15 parts in now, and I'm still saying chapters instead of paragraphs. Paragraph 18, promise number four. The sifting out of bad shepherds. A key reason why God's people went so wrong was the influence of corrupt men who took the lead. Jehovah promised to change that. 
Regarding such bad shepherds, he promised, I will dismiss them from feeding my sheep. I will rescue my sheep from their mouth. In contrast, Jehovah assured his faithful people, I will care for my sheep. How would he do so? He would use faithful, loyal men as shepherds. You know, this one's particularly interesting to me because, as I was saying a minute ago, they it's like they, they lack self-awareness. They must realize that there are some things they're getting wrong here, that there are a lot of unhappy people. But I think that one of the things that kind of shields the governing body members from criticism, like, pretty well, is the fact that regular Jehovah's Witnesses are not allowed to talk to outsiders. And, of course, that's one of my criticisms for them. They should not ban people from talking to outsiders. That's wrong. That's bad. That's, that's a step down the wrong road. That is a sign that you're a cult, that you try to silence critics or that you refuse to let anybody listen to criticisms. That is a sign of a cult. And this promise here, the sifting out of bad shepherds, uh, of course, they're talking about ancient Israel here, but this is supposed to shadow future events. I wonder if they're connecting the dots on that, that maybe that maybe they are bad shepherds. I doubt it. But, you know, who knows? Maybe one day they'll start to realize. Okay, here's paragraph 19, promise number five. Unity among worshipers of Jehovah. Now, remember, we talked about this in the very beginning. That's kind of what this whole paragraph was supposed to be about. Unity among worshipers. Unity of belief is the key there. Uh, You know, that's another sign of a cult. People not really being allowed to have independent thought, or at the very least being discouraged from having independent thought. In the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, it's not just discouraged, but if you have your own ideas about things, they will disfellowship you. If you think that maybe the governing body members might be a little bit off about this thing or that thing, they'll disfellowship you. You're not allowed to have different ideas and beliefs about things, period. Either you're in this religion and you buy it hook, line, and sinker, or you don't, and you're not in the religion. Simple as that, in their eyes. Okay, so let me continue on. This is the very last paragraph. Uh, Paragraph 19, Promise 5, Unity Among Worshippers of Jehovah. Imagine how distressing it was for faithful worshippers to see uh, disunity among Jehovah, I'm sorry, God, I'm saying Jehovah where it doesn't say Jehovah, among God's people before the exile. Influenced by false prophets and corrupt shepherds, the people rebelled against the faithful prophets who represented Jehovah. And people even broke into, op- and people even broke into opposing factions. Thus, one of the most appealing features of the restoration was a promise through Ezekiel. I will give them a unified heart, and I will put a new spirit in them. As long as the returning Jews remained at unity with Jehovah God and with one another, no opposer could defeat them. As a nation, they could once again bring glory to Jehovah instead of reproach and dishonor. So that's the end of it. Um, Really interesting uh, take on this whole thing, on the book of Ezekiel that they're giving us here. I notice they're slipping a lot of things in to reinforce the mind control, which I, I'm actually going to be talking about mind control on my main channel soon, but you know, a lot of people view this as some kind of a weird mystical thing, commonly like something that you don't even realize is happening to you. Well, that's true. You don't realize when mind control is happening, but really what mind control is, it's just breaking down your identity and replacing it with one that they want. 
you can see that clear as day with Jehovah's Witnesses. They're breaking down the identity, your authentic self, and replacing it with the Jehovah's Witness identity. I've said this a billion times. In fact, I said this in one of my videos a while back. There is no my mother, Jennifer Allen. There is no Jennifer Allen anymore. There is only Jennifer Allen, Jehovah's Witness. That's it. Because her identity has been so thoroughly replaced with the Jehovah's Witness identity that they want to impose on people. Um, so you can see them all through this book replacing people's authentic identities with the one that they want. With things like this right here, unity among worshipers of Jehovah, encouraging that kind of thing. It's really fascinating to see, really depressing at the same time, but uh, yeah, we'll get through it. We'll get through the book and we'll be better for it. So that's all I've got for you guys. Thanks for coming and giving this a listen, and I will talk to you next week.